all the technocrats who say this is a sensible arrangement and we shouldn't worry about it are apparently quite happy to live with another country having a say over what happens in our country. You know, unless you're a member of the EU, no other country in the world has to put up with this sort of thing. And I don't see why we should either. That's that's not what Brexit was about. Countries should be run for the interests of people within that country. I mean, that has become a very radical statement, but I don't really see why it should be. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Lord Frost. Lord Frost, welcome to the show. Great to be back. So, David, this is a great week to be talking to you. It's a busy week. Lots of big political things are happening, all of which I think people will want to hear your views about. And it would definitely be remiss of me not to start with the Windsor framework and the new Northern Ireland Protocol, as it's been referred to, or it's a document that amends the Northern Ireland Protocol in certain ways. It's been pretty widely celebrated. It's been talked up as something that fixes the problems in the protocol, safeguards sovereignty in Northern Ireland, might even appeal to the Democratic Unionist Party. I'm very sceptical of the framework. I know that you've got some reservations too, which you've written about in your Telegraph column. So just to kick things off, what's your overall view of the framework and how it might work and what problems there might be with it? First of all, I can't quite bring myself to call it the Windsor Framework <laughs> yet, because all they've done is rename the protocol the Windsor Framework. Um, so it isn't really a new framework at all. And that's actually one of the problems with it, that um, although it is sold as a change to the way things are working in Northern Ireland, actually, it's the same old framework. It is the protocol, very slightly amended, uh, with... Uh, applied in a slightly softer fashion. And we're going to have to see how soft it is as we dig into the detail over the next week and see how it works. But um, I I don't think it deals with the the fundamentals. I think it is oversold. And it would be more honest to say, look, this is the best we can get. It's an improvement on on the, the kind of operating model of the protocol as we inherited it in 2019. Um, but it is basically still the same framework. Um, and I would like the government to have been saying it can't be a, a final endpoint. A sovereign country can't live with another country being sovereign in part of its territory. But they haven't said that. It's been represented as a final endpoint, a definitive settlement, as far as I can see. Further discussions happen within the framework uh, not outside it. And my real worry is that although there are some practical wins uh, in terms of operating it in a slightly more natural fashion, um, it's a strategic problem because we're both now committed to maintaining the protocol and the framework I- indefinitely. And I don't see how that's right, really. I think that's a, a really important point. I think It would be understandable if an element of fatigue had crept in for lots of people, even those of us who are very, very pro-Brexit. You know, you don't want to negotiations and deal making and frameworks to be going on forever and ever. So it's understandable if within Rishi's team and within the negotiating team, there was a feeling of let's just get a deal that works better, which is definitely a bit easier for business people and consumers in Northern Ireland and also in, in Great Britain. 
So that would be understandable. But I think, as you say, the problem is the packaging of it as a great victory for the safeguarding of sovereignty, to use uh, Rishi Sunak's words, the idea that it removes the border from the Irish Sea, which is not entirely true. So instead of presenting it to us as the streamlining of a problematic protocol so that at least life is made easier for people, it is being presented as a great Brexit-style victory. And I do think there's an element of dishonesty there. You say in your column, and you've just said now, that it does make things easier, but it doesn't seem to change the fundamentals. And as you remind us in, in the Telegraph, those fundamentals are the problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is that it applies EU laws on customs, the single market, elements of VAT and state aid in Northern Ireland. And as you say, that means there is a part of Britain's sovereign territory which is subject to foreign-made laws. And that is intolerable, I think, for a great number of people. So if the framework doesn't resolve that problem, how much can the technical fixes that it does provide cover that up? Do you think there's there's a possibility that parties in Northern Ireland and people in Northern Ireland will welcome the streamlining of customs that the framework possibly will bring about, even though the framework doesn't go as far as some of us would like to resolving the big question here, which is sovereignty. Yeah, I I think um, the DUP and unionism more broadly in Northern Ireland's got a a pretty difficult problem now, um, because I imagine... You know, everybody's a bit conflicted between just wanting life to, to kind of get back to something like normal and mm. everything be easy and, you know, some of the heat that's clearly been growing, get, being taken out of this this issue and understanding that it is it is still a sovereignty problem. And, um, you know, I, I, I like to believe that the British people would not accept this in any other part of the United Kingdom's territory, but but um, a lot of people seem willing to accept it in in Northern Ireland, and I, I do understand why that makes unionism nervous. Um, everybody will now be telling them, "You must go back. You must go back to Stormont. We must get the show on the road uh, again." And you know, undoubtedly, there are people in unionism who think that. I I, I think a lot may hinge now on. You know, does the deal do anything like what it says on the tin? Um, if there is a worry that um, you know that the the, um, the the customs border in the Irish Sea will still turn out to be a meaningful thing, that the which I think it it might, um, you know, that the Stormont Lock is really going to be unusable in anything other than extreme already political crisis circumstances. Um, then I think they'll have qualms if it looks it might, like it might work temporarily. Then, then maybe they'll see things differently. But I do think they need time and space to, to think properly about this. I wanted to ask you about a couple of specific things in the framework that that we know about, and uh, we will people will have been reading about them. I do think it's very interesting to read the EU's document. The EU has published a Q&A document about the framework, which is a little bit different in tone and in some cases in substance to um, the government's documents, which are much longer and much more in-depth. Um, but if we just look at a couple of the issues and the problems that they potentially raise, so there's the issue of the green lanes and the red lanes. So this is uh, intended to make customs 
trade within Britain's internal market a bit easier. So if goods are going to Northern Ireland and staying in Northern Ireland, they can go on a green lane. If there is a risk of them going to the Republic of Ireland, or if they're landing in the Republic of Ireland later, um, they will go in a red lane. That raises red flags in my mind already. You know, how do you define what is a risky product for getting into the Republic of Ireland? That could be any number of things. And that seems to be a pretty subjective judgment that uh, EU officials might be able to make. But isn't the green lane, it's not quite as good as Rishi Sunak is selling it to us because British businesses will have to sign up to a trusted trader scheme in all, in order to use the green lane. That's a scheme that will have EU involvement. Eurocrats will have some oversight of that. Uh, there is the possibility that they will be able to instruct British border officials to make customs checks if they suspect that things are being moved in a way that they shouldn't be. They will have access to almost real-time trade data from the UK, which seems to me a pretty preposterous thing for a foreign power to request of a democratic nation. So isn't the Green Lane really a border down the Irish Sea, but just a softer version of it? It doesn't really rectify the, that, that creation of a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, does it? No, I mean, I agree. There's only no border in the Irish Sea if moving goods to Belfast is the same as moving them to Birmingham. And I don't think you're going to be able to credibly say that on this this basis. It's going to be a bit easier, no doubt, than it was before. Um, but the problem is it's there will still be a process. You've still got to sign up to trust a trader scheme. You've still got to prove your goods meet the criteria or at least be ready to prove that if asked. And the whole thing operates under EU law. Yeah. Um, it operates under the EU customs code. The trusted trader scheme is an EU law scheme. We've got very limited agency to, to change any of this if it doesn't work, except by by agreement. And that, that is general worry about this, that the the agency that we've developed over the last uh, sort of 12 to 18 months on this, albeit a slightly conflictual one, we have now lost again. We're, we're back in the framework of EU law as the protocol applies, and we have shown that we're not going to challenge that. So the green lane is a clever term because it obviously brings to mind walking through the green lane at the airport, but but it really isn't going to be quite like that. Um, we're just going to have to see how tough it is in practice. One of the big problems of the original arrangement is that it, it just puts people off. You know, Marks and Spencers can cope with it, but some small cheese producer in the West Country can't be bothered. Yeah. And we'll have, that will be a real test if does that change or not in this. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, in terms of a specific measure is the Stormont break, the Stormont lock. Now, that's the thing that when I heard it at the press conference, I thought to myself, OK, this is interesting. If there is a possibility of the UK... Uh, unilaterally vetoing new EU, EU law so that they don't apply in Northern Ireland. I thought that's a positive. That's a that's a good development, and it may be. But but what becomes clear when you read the detail is that it's not quite the veto that it was sold to us as at that press conference and in subsequent coverage to, to describe how it would potentially work. If thirty members of the Northern Ireland Assembly say, "Look, we're not really into this new EU amendment or this new EU law." then they can apply to Westminster and Westminster can then take measures to prevent the enactment of that law in Northern Ireland. But as the EU's document makes clear, this can only be done in incredibly narrow circumstances by the sounds of things, once every other avenue has been exhausted. 
And also, it makes very clear that it will not apply to all acts coming out of the European Union, but only to amendments or replacements of a certain number of EU acts. So even uh, the European laws that it can be used against are fairly limited. So even my excitement about that has subsided over the past couple of days. Do you feel the same? Do you think that this is not quite the veto that we were told it was? And and then, of course, uh, on top of that, there's the broader question of why are EU laws being applied in Northern Ireland anyway, uh, That we, to such an extent that there might come a point when we would have to veto them? Yeah, I'm not at all excited by this, I've got to admit. Um, I hoped that it would be better than it's turning out to be. Um, as you say, first of all, it doesn't do anything about the stock the laws that already apply, which is uh, a lot. Second, um, again, this is an area where it's, it's interesting to look at what the EU say about how it works. They give a more accurate description, in my view, of it um, than our own government. First point is there already was a system in the protocol like this, whereby the UK government could block new EU laws within the scope of the protocol. It wasn't triggered by Stormont. The UK government could just block them. Um, and then there will be dispute settlement. So what all this does is extend that to amendments of existing laws, provided they're extremely significant, there, there are these tests, and that Stormont can trigger it. Um, but I think in practice, um, you know, the idea that um, amendments to existing laws, most of which are kind of relatively trivial, uh, and day to day, the idea they're going to pass this test of, you know, significant disruption to daily life, or I forget the precise words, but it's a very high test. A test will be in the hands of UK government lawyers, and we know how conservative they are. Um, I just don't see this really being usable in practice, except in moments where there already is a big political crisis and this is one of the tools that we we choose to use the other thing that I, i've not seen commented on much is what would happen if northern Ireland did use this suppose it turns out to be more usable than people think um what would happen is that you would have three regulatory systems developing you'd have the eu set of standards um, you'd have the UK, hopefully diverged set of standards, but let's see. And then you'd have Northern Ireland ones, which were the old EU ones with some stuff taken out. And I don't see how that helps Northern Ireland to develop its own uh, system of standards. So there'll be tremendous pressure not to use this in practice and to stick with um, EU arrangements. You know, it's an extra tool. It's not worth zero. But the idea this is going to stop the imposition of EU law is 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 fundamentally wrong, in my view. Spiked is free and it always will be. There's no paywall and no subscriptions. We want to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, we need your help. If you support the work that we do, why not become a regular donor? As little as £5 a month is enough to make a huge difference. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated, especially with all that's going on in the world at the moment. If you want to make a regular donation, then all you have to do is go to spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. So I, I want to um, broaden it out a little bit more to the discussion around the framework, the media discussion as well, and the broader discussion about 
why the Northern Ireland problem, as people refer to it, is is lingering on. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you in relation to that is why you think the EU is doing all this stuff that it's been doing. You know, you were the, the chief negotiator for the UK for a period of time under Boris Johnson, and you had many dealings with the European Union. You, you know better than most how they operate, how they think, what they might be thinking at any particular time. Why do you think they have been so persistent on the Northern Irish question? Now, on one level, we can take it on good faith that they are concerned about the integrity of the single market and Northern Ireland obviously shares a border with the Republic of Ireland, which is an EU member state. So there will be some practical questions that they will need to confront as a trading block. But at the same time, it does seem to me that there's an element of almost punishing Brexit Britain or making life hard for us uh, and even siphoning off a part of British territory in some ways in terms of trade and customs uh, as a way of almost sending a signal that you really shouldn't have pursued this policy of Brexit and also every other country in Europe, you really have to think twice before you do anything like this and try to leave the European Union. Do you think there's a alongside the practical challenges they no doubt face as a as a powerful single market, that there is a, a an element where they want to really teach uppity Brexit Britain a bit of a lesson. I, I think that's been a, you know, there's been a mix of motivations for them the whole time uh, on this. There are reasonable motivations about protecting their own single market, um, though they seem like particularly obsessional about it <laughs> in the Northern Ireland context compared to elsewhere. Um, I, I think they've, you know, they, they got captured by an Irish uh, view of the Good Friday Agreement and what it implied and and pushed that without regard to the balance. And that's that's been part of the problem, you know, possibly a bit unreflectively. Um, I think there is also an element of, you know, wanting to make life hard for us, wanting to create incentives not to diverge, not to reduce taxes, not to do things differently, and to, to kind of keep us bogged down um, uh, in Northern Ireland. Now, you know, is there a, a sort of secret document, you know, in which the, you know the EU agrees that they're going to pursue this policy to make life difficult for us? No, I don't think so. I think it's um, it's more about um, it's a special version of how they relate to their neighbours. They they see their neighbours not as kind of equals and friends, but as um, not quite satellites, but, you know, countries whose most important relationship is with the European Union and have to um, accept a degree of restriction on their own policies because of their geographical location. And Barnier was quite explicit about that in, in 2020. And I think that's what's going on. They're using the tools that we were foolish enough to agree to back in 2017 and 2018. And mm. um, we've never been able to, to get away from that. You know, why did they settle now? is a very interesting question. I, I see people out this morning, people like Danny Finkelstein and so on, saying, and William Hague and all these people saying, it's all about building trust. Look what happens when you build trust and are nice to each other and and so on and so forth. I mean, I'd say two things on that. One, um, I, I actually think they've settled because we look weak. They've seen that we're not willing to use the protocol bill. They've seen that we're willing to accept for second best for a quiet life and 
they've read that very accurately and and given us some concessions to make it happen. Um, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, if we'd focused on building trust in 2019 and 2020, we would still be in the European Union. Our approach got us out and got us the FTA that everybody said couldn't be achieved. Building trust so far has produced a slightly thinner customs border. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I did actually want to ask you about the broader discussion swirling around the so-called uh, Windsor framework which I think has been very interesting. And in some ways, I'm more worried about the discussion of the Windsor framework than I am about the Windsor framework itself, which I'm, and I'm pretty concerned about it. Because it seems to me, if you read the Times, of course, if you read the Guardian, if you listen to certain political voices, both around Rishi Sunak and further afield, the argument that is generally being made is what a relief. We're past all the political nonsense. We're past all that um, Brexitism, as a piece in The Guardian calls it today, Johnsonism as well, they also refer to it as. Basically, they mean populism. We've even had Steve Baker and ERG Stalwart saying, um, you know, thank God we're past all that awful populism of the past few years, which was a fairly surprising comment. But beyond him, within the mainstream, pretty Remainer sections of the media classes in particular, there is a great sense of relief that I guess there's been a victory of technical questions over political questions. And I really think that's how they see the Windsor framework. They see this is finally the elevation or the denigration, however you prefer, of Brexit to practical technical matters rather than political, moral or philosophical questions, however we might define them. I thought there was a really interesting column in The Telegraph where they basically say, um, it basically argues that the cult of the vandal, that's people like you, Lord Frost, and me and other Brexiteers, they say the cult of the vandal is finally being put to one side. Now we remember that we need the old skills of establishment statecraft. So almost like they think that the, we're returning to technocracy, I guess, and they see Rishi Sunak as the person who might deliver us from the seas of populism into the calm of uh, a more technocratic form of governance. Have you noticed that kind of discussion around the framework? Is that something that worries you, that we, we might find ourselves being propelled into an era in which Brexit is little more than a technical question when millions of people voted for it precisely because they wanted to put important questions onto the political agenda? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing this swirl around generally, I think, and not just on on Northern Ireland, and I've no doubt we'll see it again uh, in the next few months um, over some of the other big issues that are that are coming up: the budget, the small boats issue, all that that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I, it's reasonable to want a quiet life. I mean, everybody does. And the, the, the point of Brexit is not actively to have bad relations with all our neighbours. It's much better if we don't and uh, um, we can get on with running our own country as we, we see fit. Um, but it doesn't seem like that is possible at the moment, except on the EU's terms, or at least, you know, in a way that's very heavily influenced by what EU ways of doing things. And you know, the technocrats are the people who got us into this situation. They've run the country for the last 30 years until 2016. They are the people who generated the politics of populism because people didn't like it. And, 
you know, the problem is that um, sensible people seem capable of believing some really remarkably silly things, unfortunately. And all the technocrats who say this is a sensible arrangement and we shouldn't worry about it are apparently quite happy. All these people are quite happy to live with another country having a say over what um, happens in our country. And that that is not a sensible thing at all. It's an extremely unusual thing. And, you know, unless you're a member of the EU, no other country in the world has to put up with this sort of thing. And I don't see why we should either. That's that's not what Brexit was about. So, yeah, I do worry that technocracy is, is coming back. I, and, you know, I, what people like me and I think you believe is, you know, it's not the cult of the vandal. It's, it's to believe that countries should be run for the interests of people within that country. And I, I don't see, I mean, that has become a very radical statement, but I don't really see why it should be. I think that that really is the fundamental question, is the question of sovereignty. And I think one thing I find frustrating is that anyone who says that is looked upon as a vandal, is looked upon as an extremist, where one could quite easily argue that the more extreme position is the idea that a democratic country should submit itself to foreign-made laws. That's not what democracy is about. That's that's not how democracy works. I think the idea that a section of one's own sovereign territory should have laws made for it by a foreign power over which we have no control at all is a pretty extreme position, whereas arguing that uh, all of your country should be sovereign is seems to me a pretty sensible position. I mean, we've been living through the revenge of Remainerism for a long time. I mean, you know, we all know that there were sections of society that just refused to accept the result of the referendum. They agitated very strongly for a few years to try to water Brexit down or to try to prevent it entirely from happening. They seem to have accepted it more recently as something that's just going to happen. But do you think there's now not necessarily a strategy, but an instinct or a desire to make Brexit a weaker political phenomenon and just turn it into a complicated technical question of how we relate to our powerful neighbour on the continent. Is this Remainerism by the back door where we're not exactly dragged back into Brussels, but we're certainly weakened as a sovereign nation by being bound to Brussels in certain ways? Yeah, I think that is happening. Um, I don't think, I mean, it's silly to say, I, don't, I know you didn't say it, but some people do, um, you know, there's a plot or a conspiracy or anything like that. There, There isn't. I think what we're just seeing is the, the instincts of a large part of the, the British establishment reasserting itself. And they, they think it was economically irrational to leave the EU. They don't really understand the arguments about sovereignty and control because they never personally felt the loss of those things in their in their lives and um they they will not resist a drift back um i mean obviously if if labor win we'll see it certainly but i i do think that we you know presented with policy decisions there will be a tendency to take the one that's easier from the point of view of the eu relationship and that is how the drift happens it isn't by negotiating a new treaty is just accepting your policies are a bit circumscribed because you live where you do. And, um, you know, it's easy to see how that could one day become a Remain movement or rejoin single market movement and so on. But um, I don't think it's quite that yet. I think it's just a it's just a drift. And of course, we're also seeing at the same time this constant campaign 
to attribute everything bad that's happening in the country to to Brexit, as if nothing bad had had happened in the last thirty years, um, and the government's not pushing back against that. You know, the the resistance to that is left to a few bloggers and commentators and people on Twitter who point out this is all misleading. But there is no kind of government led messaging about Brexit at the moment. Um, and to the extent there is any, it's, uh, it's that it's all a bit of a problem and a complication. And wouldn't it be easier if it just all went away? And that that is so frustrating politically, really, after the last few years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that actually takes me on to the next issue I wanted to talk to you about, which was the government, also uh, Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, and, and what we might have learned over the past few days in particular it's interesting the way some people in the media talk about Rishi Sunak. They talk about him as a hobbyist Eurosceptic. So he was kind of a Eurosceptic, but not really one of the bad ones, not one of the really overly passionate ones, not one of the ones who went on about bendy bananas or whatever prejudice they might have of, of Brexiteers. Um, he's seen by lots in the media as not Boris Johnson. So he's not Boris Johnson in the sense that he's a bit more technocratic. He's a bit more cool. He's a bit more wooden, I guess. He's a bit more of the Blairite style rather than the kind of Johnson style. That's how people understand him. Whether that's accurate or not, I think other people can make their own judgments. But there does seem to be a welcoming of Rishi Sunak as as a return of the adult to the room in the same way that Biden and Harris in the US, they were widely celebrated as the return of the adults to the room after the childish experiment of Donald Trump and, and American populism. The adults in the room in the US haven't turned out to do particularly well. Uh, but how do you understand that discussion? Do you see Rishi Sunak as a return to that kind of slightly drab, third way, middle of the road, technocratic politics um, that people, I suppose, were bristling against uh, when they voted for Brexit as much as they were bristling against uh, the institutions of the European Union? Does that concern you, the way he's interpreted and celebrated as a kind of the grown-up coming back to take control of politics that has gone horribly wrong because of those 17.4 million voters. Yeah, I can't, I mean, you can't see into people's minds about Brexit. You know, Rishi campaigned for Brexit. He was a lever. Um, one must take that at, at face value. And I know I get all sorts of opinions attributed to me, which I don't hold. And, you know, <laughs> sort of belief to see in my inner uh, mind that is not Right, and so I, I try and avoid doing that about other people uh, as well. I think he, you know, he he has said what he he says. I think you know he's obviously a different kind of politician. I do sympathise that you know the Conservative Party's in a terrible mess at the moment. It doesn't kind of agree on anything. There seems to be a blocking minority for almost any conceivable policy. So I, I do sympathise with the you know the the obvious. Um, care he's taking to keep the show on the road and avoid unnecessary confrontation. I think anyone would have to do that to to some extent. But you know, it does seem that he is somebody who um, you know tends to be willing to give um, more space to the views of the civil service, the establishment, the the kind of conventional wisdom about things than uh, was true. Um, under Boris and and under Liz. And um, I think, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that's always wrong. It would be stupid to say that's always wrong. Um, but I do think that when you've got big things to do, you need a degree of a sort of determination and conviction and willingness to kind of push on 
even when people are telling you not to, um, that I'm not seeing quite yet at the moment. And, you know, if being the adults back just means accepting everybody else's view about things and getting things back to normal, well, I don't think that's right, because I think the country faces huge challenges and um, we are going to have to do some exceptional things. I think where, you know, the critique of people like Boris and Trump on this point is that um, they were a bit too populist. You know, they never saw the importance of getting a grip on the machine and driving the machine and making things happen. And in different ways, they both sort of failed to do some of the things they said were extremely important. You know, Trump never built the wall. Um, we never got grip properly on the, the sort of lockdown debate uh, in the ways you want it and so on. So, you know, what you need is, is you know, somebody like, you know, I guess a lot of people hope DeSantis will be, which is somebody with strong convictions, driving force to change things, but also an understanding that the machine is there to be used and kind of kicking it around isn't in itself going to help you get there. On that issue, well, you mentioned earlier that one of the disappointments with uh, Rishi Sunak's government is they're not out there making the case for Brexit. They're not out there saying, look, um, this is a good thing. We're going to pursue it and so on. And instead, they have this kind of um, framework approach. And we'll see how that pans out in the next few weeks and months. But another way in which um, the Conservative governments of the past couple of years, few years have disappointed me in particular, is that they haven't pursued the war against woke that I had expected them to, or at least hoped that they would. Now, woke means different things to different people, but to my mind, it means identity politics, the new illiberalism, cancel culture, uh, a shamefacedness about British history and British tradition, the educating of children in things they shouldn't be educated in, such as that there are 73 genders and that Britain is a racist hellhole, all those kinds of problems that have emerged in our societies and other societies. And uh, I fear that conservative politicians haven't pushed back against that as firmly as they might. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. The first thing I want to ask you is about the Scottish experience of the past few weeks, where the government did take a stand, in fact, uh, which was, I think, quite good, against Nicola Sturgeon's um, gender reform bill, which would have been, I think, catastrophic for women's rights. And the Westminster government quite rightly said, look, this could impact on women's equality across the country. And therefore, it's unacceptable. In relation to that, in relation to the Isla Bryson scandal, where we have this um, male rapist uh, claiming to be a woman and being referred to as a woman by the media and even by Dominic Raab on Sky News, which I thought was quite shocking. This is a man who raped two women. And that is obviously been a huge part of the Scottish scandal as well. What do you make of that issue, the trans issue, the way it's played out in Scotland, and the question of whether conservative politicians will be able to stand up firmly against what I consider to be a pretty crazy state of affairs. Yeah, I mean, I think it, um, you know, it is the, the one decisive action the government has taken so far. And look what happened. Um, it totally changed the political scene in Scotland. Everyone's had to respond to the government rather than allow it and then sort of pushing them around. So I hope that the lesson is learned from that. I, I, I mean, it also shows that, I think, that support for these woke ideas is still relatively fragile. Mm. It's, it's much stronger in the media and the, you know, the so-called intellectual classes than it is um, amongst kind of ordinary voters. And that may not always be the case 
in future. So it is quite important to fight back now against it um, before it gets more widespread. I thought actually Michael Gove's speech yesterday, um, uh, the launch of Onward was quite interesting on that. I don't always agree with him on everything, but uh, you know he he says we shouldn't call it woke because it, it sort of trivialises that this is a malign force that's trying to undermine all kinds of things, and we should take it more seriously. So. I think um, you know it's very good that the spell on this seems to have been broken in Scotland and hopefully more generally for a bit. But we need to keep it up. And you're right, the government has not done enough. I, I, I mean, I do think there's a dilemma here that you know we don't want to get into a position where there are like government-approved ideas that everybody must must yeah. teach. You know that leads you into an an opposite error. Um, though I'm not against teaching British history properly and this sort of thing, uh, but but generally I think free speech is the the solvent for this sort of thing. Part of the problem with woke ideas is that people are frightened to speak out because they fear what's going to happen to them, sort of socially or professionally or whatever, and they they keep their mouth shut. And if we could just have people saying what they think and able to resist, have more say about what's taught in schools, all this sort of thing, I think some of it would be would dissolve. And that's what the government's got to stand up for. The the culture of free speech is being lost yeah. gradually. And um uh there the government can stand up and protect, you know, we, we don't agree with what you say, you've got an absolute right to say it. So let's have the discussion. I'd like to hear a bit more of that. Yeah, I think that fear of speaking up or speaking out or just saying what one believes, you, you can see that all the time these days. I thought it was really extraordinary that Peter Tatchell, I, I admire Peter Tatchell in many ways, I think he's a very brave campaigner, um, but he, he apologised uh, yesterday, I think, or, or this week, he apologised for referring to Isla Bryson as he, um, after he got some flack online. And um, I, I do think it's worth clocking every now and then just how much of a... <laughs> psychotic situation this is where someone like Tatchell um obviously he's politically correct in some ways but he's also uh, an esteemed campaigner is having to apologize for referring to a rapist of women as he um and we see this uh, quite a lot we see it particularly with um there are lots of women's rights groups now including in Scotland but also across the rest of the country who I think are taking a very important stand, not only for biological truth and the right of women to their own spaces and their own swimming areas at Hampstead Heath and their own changing rooms and their own domestic violence shelters, but who are also at, at the same time standing up for freedom of speech and their, their right to, to say things that are perfectly legitimate and which would strike most people as being correct. Do you think that the government doesn't realise how powerful it would be if someone in the government were to express support for those kinds of campaigners or was to come out on the side of J.K. Rowling, for example. I always think it's quite extraordinary that so few government ministers have said, look, J.K. Rowling is an, a cultural institution, one of the most important cultural figures in modern Britain. It's unacceptable that she is treated in the way that she's treated simply for expressing perfectly normal views. On those issues, for example, when women are out on the streets saying and doing certain things, wouldn't the government benefit, and the country arguably, from speaking up on some of these things? Absolutely. And, you know, of course, you, you government figures will point to moments where they've said the right thing quite often. And it's not like they never do. It's just that it's not a campaign. It's, you know, it's kind of almost in passing remarks about things to keep people happy. But it's not... Um, you know, to make the ordinary voter understand 
something. You've got to communicate it over and over again, because rightly, most people don't pay much attention to politics day to day. So to break through that, you've got to keep repeating it and repeating it so that people understand this is what the government thinks. And this is an area where they've just got to say much, much more. We're behind you. Speak out. You know, it is unacceptable that people should lose their jobs for making perfectly factual statements. Um, we we just need much much more of this. Of course, one of the problems is that the you know the party, the Conservative Party itself, is divided on this issue, or maybe divided is not quite fair. But there is a range of views, as we've seen um, from the online safety bill debate um, and one or two other things. The you know there there is a strand of opinion in the modern Conservative Party that sympathises with all of this. Uh, unfortunately, that's that's grown up in recent years, and um, uh, you know that that probably inhibits. Uh, but it, it, you know, it's my my wider belief that parts of the modern Conservative Party are not particularly conservative, and this is this is just one example of that. I just wish we could have more about freedom in the public debate, and it, it, people just don't use the word in the way they used to. And it's such a terrible, terrible loss for Western culture and Western society, seeing this value degrade. Uh, only the government can stand up for it, and it must do much, much more than it's doing at the moment. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. So on on that issue of freedom, particularly freedom of speech, which, which you've mentioned, um, I did want to get your views on what happened at that high school in Wakefield. Um, I'm sure you followed this story. Many people have been. I find it very, very chilling where an autistic pupil was suspended for making a smudge on a page of the Koran with no malicious intent, according to his head teacher. It's blown up into this huge issue. I think one of the most chilling spectacles I've seen in some time was this child's mother basically being paraded at a public meeting with some um, leaders of the Muslim community and other local officials, uh, her head covered, um, and she was basically saying, look, my son was stupid, but he doesn't, he shouldn't be punished any more than he already is being. I wanted to ask you, how is that allowed to happen in 21st century Britain, where there's this almost ritualistic humiliation of someone for the supposed crime of, of blasphemy? Uh, and uh, again, that's another issue, isn't it, on which someone in a position of authority should say, look, this can't be allowed to happen. This kid should not be suspended. This was not a malicious attack on uh, a sacred object. It was an accidental event. It was a very minor event. That's a pretty worrying snapshot of how blasphemy seems to be making a bit of a comeback and freedom of speech, as you say, is being further weakened. Yeah. I I, I mean, I find the whole thing extraordinary, really. Um, One extraordinary feature is the fact it's actually quite hard to get um, hard information about what actually happened here. The mainstream media generally don't seem to to be covering it. Um, so one one gets glimpses and commentary from spikes and and others who who do care about this sort of thing. But it's actually quite hard to to work out what's going on. The reason we get this is because people are frightened, and you know people will not speak out to say this is wrong. This should not be happening. And the involvement of the state authorities in this, the, the head teacher, the police, for goodness sake, just strikes me as 
you know, absolutely extraordinary. And yet everybody is looking the other way. And they're looking the other way because they're scared, I think. And they saw what happened to that teacher in Batley. And they think, I don't want that to happen to me and my family. So I'll just keep my head down. I mean, I'm just so angry about the way this is allowed to happen with no pushback in any way. And, you know, individuals caught up in this have no defense. There's nobody they can look to to protect their reasonable interests. The correct response to this was, you know, for the head teachers say, don't damage books, don't damage people's books. That's just kind of normal thing you say to children, don't do it again. It's not treated in the way that it's been treated as some horrific kind of aberration that involves the state. The whole thing is just bizarre. I mean, it makes me wonder how much of this goes on and is not reported, in fact. Yeah. It, you know, occasionally it gets over the threshold, but but who knows? Yeah, It's very revealing of a wider culture, these sort of events. Absolutely. Uh, okay, David, I really want to ask you about the lockdown files. Um, this has just dropped uh, shortly before us recording this podcast. It's causing waves already. So Isabel Oakshot has revealed lots and lots of um, WhatsApp messages that Matt Hancock was sending every minute of every day, according to one of the reports I read. He was constantly on WhatsApp, which is forgivable, I suppose, for a health secretary. Um, Lots of messages he sent while he was health secretary, while the pandemic crisis was happening. Um, He's denied one of the key pieces of information that seems to be coming out, which is that he was so obsessed with mass testing across the country that he neglected to institutionalize testing for people going into care homes. And so the accusation is that he neglected the care of the most vulnerable sections of society, which were the very old and the frail who were in these care homes where we know there were lots of COVID uh, cases and lots of COVID deaths. More broadly, before we get into some of this, a few of the specifics, what have you made of the lockdown files? Have you been surprised? Have you been shocked? Is this the kind of thing that you thought might have been happening behind the scenes? Well, I mean, it's probably fair to say that, you know, what's, so one person's WhatsApp feed is not going to give a total picture of what was going on and the richness of decision-making. And, you know, one one phone call that wasn't recorded is, you know, could change the, the picture quite significantly. So I think one has to aim off slightly for drawing, you know, very robust conclusions about this. But obviously, overall, they gave a picture of what was going on and at a time when people couldn't meet easily and lots of people were at home and so on and that's why more gets done on whatsapp than probably would normally happen you know it is going to confirm i suspect you know a lot of what we thought that you know decision taking wasn't always totally evidenced and you know sometimes that's understandable in the the first month or two of the pandemic when everyone was grappling with it and the government was verging on collapse day to day um, is less understandable the further you go out from April 2020 as normality asserted itself. So, I, I, I mean, we're, we're going to learn a lot from this, undoubtedly. I don't think we're necessarily going to get a like a full and fair picture of everything that was that emerged. Um, I mean, what, what I found interesting was Isabel Oakshaw's justification for it, which was that the inquiry is going to take forever. And we need to know before that. And I mean, she's obviously right about that. And, you know, when you look at the the fact that investigating a few minutes in Londonderry took 10 years of public inquiry, you know, how long is this going to take? Um, and it seems very clear that, you know, the longer it takes, the less likely it is to reach robust conclusions 
based on anything. So this hard information now is really important, I think. Yes, I agree. And I was going to ask you about the um, the length of time it might take for us to have a reckoning with the lockdown policy, or, or at least a, a serious inquiry into what were the right decisions and what were the wrong decisions. One of the key reasons you left the government was because of the lockdown policy and some of the plan B measures that were being proposed at the time, which was constant mask wearing, vaccine passports were being floated for a period of time. Basically, new infrastructures of authoritarianism in the new COVID era or the new normal, as people were quite widely referring to it at the time. Do you think we will ever get a reckoning with lockdown? Because one of the feelings I have, I was incredibly sceptical of lockdown measures. Although like you, I understand that when the virus first broke in March 2020, first came to this country, it was understandable that government didn't quite know what to do and and felt it had to take certain measures. But after that, I think some of the policies were problematic. But do you think we're really going to have that questioning and that critique? Because one of my feelings is that something very interesting has happened to the lockdown discussion where I think lots of people kind of leave it alone now because they're just so glad to be back to relative normality and they can just go out and do things. They don't, I think a lot of people don't want to think about those two years, not because they're scared or ignorant, but because they're relieved that that's past and and that's a historical moment. And then the other divergence has been uh, continuing lockdown scepticism, but it's going down a pretty perverse route, I think, into, I don't know, anti-vaxxer or an obsession with the WEF or this belief that Bill Gates was behind the whole thing, was probably whispering in Matt Hancock's ear every day, and it's become a bit conspiratorial. And those are the two things I, I, I feel going on. Lots of people thinking, let's leave it, it's gone, we're over it. And other people thinking, let's talk about nothing else but lockdown. How do we cut through those two things and have a serious analysis of what happened? So I think I've very low expectations for the public inquiry, based on what I've seen so far. Um, I, I don't think we'll get a... Um, a clear assessment of everything that went on, and it will take ages to reach that point. Um, I actually think, um, in an ideal world, we'd have something like the South Africans' uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where you know we say at the start, look, nobody's going to get prosecuted, nobody's going to be blamed for anything other than in the court of public opinion, um, but you've got to tell the truth. We need to know so that if this ever happens again, we've got some actual reliable information about it. Um, I think the public inquiry where everybody is is kind of um, protecting their own position and has an incentive to deflect blame is not going to produce that. I don't suppose we'll get Truth and Reconciliation Commission either. Therefore, I think the reckoning has to come in the media and we need to look to the media to um, pour out as much information as it can uh, so that people can can engage with it and we can have an honest discussion about it. And you know, there obviously still are areas where discussion is constrained. Uh, I think we are now able to talk about the lab leak theory, it seems. Um, the the question of the vaccines, I mean, I genuinely don't know what the truth is about the vaccine. It seems like it's, it's perfectly plausible to say that they were overwhelmingly beneficial, but in some cases there, there have been adverse effects. And I, I don't know why it's so difficult to have that debate. Um, the effect that it's having is obviously, as you say, driving people down this sort of conspiratorial mindset because people think, well, if I if I can't say this, maybe I can't say that. People come to think of themselves as marginalised and victims and then they become marginalised. So, 
once again, free speech and free debate is the way out of this based on actual hard information about things. And there the government can help. It can push out more information about what it knows about how decisions were taken uh, in the pandemic. It can push out information about, you know, what it knows about fatality rates during the pandemic, all this kind of stuff. The hard information that, you know, probably exists, but it's actually quite difficult to get your hands on. We, we still need that debate. And I, I don't think it's enough just to, for everyone to say, as I agree they are, um, you know, let's just pretend, let's just forget all this ever happened and get on with our lives. Because I think we are living long political COVID. There is still a hangover in people's minds about what the government can do and how you should behave and what is reasonable. And we need to test whether those are correct propositions or not. Again, the free speech issue is is so key to all of this. And I think one of the problems in 2020 and 2021, there was this, there often is throughout history, there's this belief that in a time of crisis, freedom of speech is not particularly important. You just got to do what you're told, hunker down, close your doors, keep safe, follow government instructions. But actually, it's at times like that, that free speech is more important than ever in terms of being able to debate these radical new policies, talk about them, make decisions, have a robust, honest discussion about whether we think they will work or not. And I thought the closing down on social media of the lab leak theory, for example, which was could essentially get you banned at certain points, or criticism of mask wearing and questioning of mask wearing could, could see you being uh, blacklisted, as we now know, on Twitter and, and Facebook. And in relation to that, I did just want to ask you briefly about what you thought of the, the recent uh, Big Brother Watch revelations about the the monitoring of social media discussion about lockdown by sections of the establishment, including sections of the military who were online keeping a close eye on people like Peter Hitchens. In the report, even a spiked article was flagged up. People who shared this spiked article were seen as being problematic and uh, spreading so-called misinformation. It really is not the business of government, is it, to to encourage private companies that run online platforms to blacklist people who the government thinks are saying problematic things? No, I, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, that Big Brother Watch report, um, I read it. I don't think there's quite a smoking gun in it that says that, you know, somebody was identified as pushing so-called misinformation and the government went to the social media and told them to shut it up. I mean, the Twitter files in America do seem to show evidence of that. And it's surprising how little coverage they've had. But I don't think it doesn't feel like it's quite a smoking gun on that yet here in Britain. And, and maybe that's because there isn't one. I don't know. It's perfectly reasonable, in my view, for government to monitor the media, which nowadays includes social media, and look at who's saying what and see what the public debate is and feed that back to, to government. I don't think that in itself is particularly sinister. It's if you encourage private organisations to blacklist or shut people up. That's the line that would seem to me to be wrong if it were crossed. Um and we, we just don't know. I mean, behind all this is just this concept of misinformation or disinformation, which I think is is a real problem nowadays. You know, the BBC has its disinformation correspondent and all this sort of thing. But, you know, one person's disinformation is another person's important contribution to a debate. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to say a fact is wrong, another to say this interpretation is wrong. And we seem to be drifting from one 
to the other. And, you know, as so often, that's a huge problem. It has a huge chilling effect on what people feel they're able to, to talk about. So many things come back to the same problem. Yeah. Okay, David, my final question for you. Too big a question, really, but we'll see how we go. I just wanted to get you to take the temperature of where you think British politics might go next. I mean, there is a huge amount of discussion about the improved fortunes of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer seeming to get a grip uh, pretty fiercely at some times, including with his refusal to allow Corbyn to stand as a Labour MP, but also basically getting a grip on the party, letting Luciana Berger back in, which I thought was a very important step that he took and will have uh, made a lot of people feel more comfortable with the Labour Party, including, of course, Jewish people. Um, Rishi Sunak, meanwhile, in the Conservative Party are not doing particularly well in the polls. And then there's the whole discussion that Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak are actually quite similar politicians. So are we back to having a choice between, you know, not very much? So how do you think British politics is going to go? Do you think Labour is going to make up the next government? Do you think things are going to go in a good direction or a problematic direction? What's your feeling? Well, I, I think, I mean, I would be silly if I said, you know, anything other than that there's a mountain to climb now yeah. for the, the Tories. That's obvious. Um, I don't think it's like totally unclimbable yet because I, I don't think Starmer has quite, you know, there isn't the same enthusiasm as there was for Tony Blair. That's obvious. The policy prescriptions are still a bit vague. Um, but you know, he may be doing enough and he's certainly very determined to change the Labour Party and to and to win. Uh, that's clear. So we have to reckon with that. The problem in the Conservative Party is that nearly two thirds of the people who voted for us in 2019 at the moment say they aren't planning to vote for us. And mostly they are planning to sit on their hands. Let's see. But the the task is to reconstitute that coalition by you know, a series of policies that um, are capable of restoring prosperity and sort of nationhood and control to us. That seems to be what we want. And it it seems like it's a fantasy to try and um, get back people who didn't vote for us in 2019. I mean, not saying it will never happen, but I would thought that was the the obvious political strategy at the moment. We need to bring back people who voted for us very recently. And that requires a set of policies that are not technocracy. They're about change. People voted for for change. Um, Giving people back agency, um, getting the government to do its job properly, control borders, law and order, all this sort of thing, and um, trying to make it worthwhile engaging in productive activity again, as opposed to doing nothing. I think these sort of things, you know, if, if properly expressed with real genuine political enthusiasm behind them could still change things around quite significantly. But it doesn't look like that's the direction the government's planning to go at the moment over the next 18 months. And to be fair, as I said to Rishi um, and others, you know, the party itself isn't showing much enthusiasm for some of that 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 either so it is difficult i i i still believe politics you know i've come late to politics i suppose but politics is about persuading people of things not accommodating yourself to what they they think and you know we have to persuade people in the conservative party so we've got the right the right policies and people voted for us so recently and they've given up on us and that that is a tragedy if we can't change that then we'll lose obviously lord frost thank you very much thanks very much 
thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.